And we're, of course, on this significant and special morning going to read the account of the resurrection. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28. We'll read Matthew's account. And before I read these words, you know, it's always worthwhile when you read any passage of Scripture, but particularly words that I'm sure are so familiar to most of us, even perhaps those who are not regularly in church on a Sunday. It's a story we know. We're very familiar but put yourself in the shoes of those. We'll read the account of uh, two ladies in particular, and then we'll turn briefly to John's Gospel and see what he has to shed and shed light on and say about the this, this same occurrence. Put yourself in their shoes, remembering, of course, that we have just gone through Good Friday for those who were here. We had an opportunity. The theme of the message was surveying the cross. And if you haven't had a chance, Joy, who I know is not here this morning, has set up this lovely display. It doesn't always look like this. But you'll see as you come and, and uh, have a look at what she's put up, there's chains. And the, the whole theme is not only the cross, but the reality of the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus, which has broken every chain. That was her message and her miss, mission as she uh, decorated the, uh, the auditorium for our Easter services. So please do, there's a crown of thorns there and some other things in your pondering and surveying of the cross. If you haven't already, come and do so. But Easter Sunday is a moment of not moving from the cross and reflecting as we have upon the sacrifice, upon the death and the suffering and even the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, but coming and reflecting upon the empty tomb. So the title of the message as we read this is Resurrection Realities. But I want us to, first of all, before we talk about an application, is put yourself in the shoes of those who were coming to the tomb on that first Easter Sunday morning, remembering the devastation, the hopes that had been dashed. Not only had there been potholes in the road, but there'd been holes that had swallowed them up. The disappointment as Jesus the one who they believed would save them and rescue them and restore the kingdom, he died. None of them had expected that. In fact, all of them only came into the full picture after his resurrection. Finally, they saw, aha, I see the entire picture, the, the mission and the majesty of what the Lord Jesus accomplished. But that morning as they went to the tomb, undoubtedly they went with grief. In fact, in John's account, it says Mary wept. And she wept, and she wept, and she continued to weep until she encountered the Lord Jesus. They went with grief. They went with uncertainties, with doubts. Did we get it all wrong? Did we miss something in this picture? This was not the way that we had planned for things to work out. Dreams that had been shattered. All of that wrestling of emotion is going through their minds and their hearts. And yet they will encounter a resurrection reality. A reality that I want us to ponder this morning as we read this account. So if you came in late, Matthew 28 verse 1, follow with me. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. And not only did he roll it back, but he sat on it. I just love that reference for what it's worth. 
His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. And here we are, a phrase, three words, four if you like, that have changed all eternity. He has risen. He has risen, just as he said. The angel continued, come and see the place where he lay. Then quickly go and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb, remembering that they'd come with grief. They'd come with sorrow. They'd come with uncertainty. And how did they leave the tomb? I love this description. It says, they departed quickly. They ran with fear, a word meaning awesome reverence, with wonder, with worship, and with great joy. They came with sorrow and they left with great joy. And they ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met up with them a little while later. He said, greetings. I wonder if that's exactly what he said. What would he say? Anyway, let me move on. And they came up and they took a hold of his feet. And what else could you do as you encounter the resurrected Savior? It says they fell at his feet in worship, in wonder and worship as they encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And thus ends Matthew's account of the resurrection morning, the encounter with the empty tomb and the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So what is it that they encountered? What was the resurrection reality for them? And what is the resurrection reality for us? Which I would suggest is just as real, just as powerful, and just as applicable 2,000 years later after the event that we've just read. If you're taking notes, here is reality one. They discovered a truth that turned their fear into faith. They discovered truth. And all of a sudden, though they came with fears, they came with doubts, they came with uncertainty, they left with faith. And I love this expression that the angel proclaims to these ladies as they were there. He says this, He has risen just as he said he would. He who promised was faithful. He came, he died, he rose again, and they encountered the truth of the reality of what that meant for them. Quickly turn over to John's account. I want to pick up one aspect of this faith. Always love John's Gospels. And he adds this detail, remembering the ladies saw the tomb first, they came back and they told the disciples, if you read from John chapter 20, So Peter and John run to the tomb. In verse 8, it says the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw the linen cloth, the face cloth, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. And in verse 8, the end of verse 8, it says this. He saw and believed. He saw the signs and believed. He had faith. And yet there's a comma there, not a full stop. And I love this next phrase. It says he believed 
For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You see, I would make this observation as John sees and he believes and still tries to wrestle through. We didn't understand this. What does this all mean? Some questions perhaps are answered. Others are not. This faith that I'm talking about that comes in the midst of our fears is not found in the absence of uncertainty, doubt, and questions, but it's found in the midst of. All of a sudden, in that place of uncertainty and doubt and fear, John's wrestling through what does this mean. He talked about the fact that he'd come and he'd die, but I don't understand. They were still pondering the reality of that which Christ had said that he'd come to do. But he saw the sign and he believed. In the midst of his doubts, in the midst of his wrestling, in the midst of his uncertainties, all the other things, all of a sudden, there is something that I can build my life upon. There is an empty tomb, and I choose to see the signs and build my life upon that. There is a truth that turns our fears into faith, not in the absence of our fears, but in the midst of fears. You see, we live in a world, it's a strange world, isn't it, where everything seems to be relative. Even the fake news is fake. Who knows what's fake and what's true anymore? Everything has a spin. What is the truth in this strange world? Is there truth? Is there something real? On a humorous side, I uh, saw this during the week. I couldn't help but sharing it. But there was a professor of economics who was so frustrated about having to write letters of recommendation for people, he put together an arsenal of statements in a collection which he called the Lexicon of Inconspicuously Ambiguous Recommendations, otherwise known as liar for short. So each of these statements has a dual meaning. You, you, you'll get there. Number one, to describe a person who is extreme, extremely lazy, he would write this, in my opinion, you will be very fortunate to get this person to work for you. <laughs> It'll come. It'll come. <laughs> to describe a person who's totally inept, he wrote this, I most enthusiastically recommend this candidate with no qualifications whatsoever. <laughs> to describe an ex-employee, he said, I'm most pleased to say that this candidate is a former colleague of mine. I like this one. To describe a candidate who's so unproductive that the job would be better left unfilled. He said, I can assure you that no person would be better for the job. <laughs> it's good. I've taken notes. I've noted some of these down. I get asked often for references. Of course, I wouldn't apply to anyone in this room. Finally, to describe a job applicant who's not worth, worth any future consideration... He writes, I would urge you to waste no time in making this candidate an offer of employment. So it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. A bit too subtle for a Sunday morning. It's an era of spin. It's an era of half-truths and reading into things. But as we come to the empty tomb, we see a truth that is undeniable. It cannot be twisted, read into, reinterpreted, watered down. There's a saviour who came and died in our place. He was buried and he was raised from the dead. Now that won't stop people trying to misinterpret it, but there is a reality to the truth, the central aspect of the gospel. There is, as we gaze into the empty tomb. You see, we live in a world where we can't really decide on much at all. 
Certainly in the church that can be the case too, but there is something that unites us across denominations, across different styles of worship, and it's the reality of who Jesus is. That he is who he said he is, that he would come, the Lord said he'd come and make a way. He came as a saviour, he died on the cross in our place to take our sins. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. Praise God. And I love that our central foundation, that the cornerstone of our faith, it's so simple, isn't it? It's so simple that we miss it. So simple. It's not like as you, you travel around the world and you see other religions and, and faiths and they're jumping through hoops and hurdles, giving offerings and sometimes even sacrificing things close to them in the hope that a God might hear them. But there's no... 10 procedures, no, 101,000 things to do that stands as the central foundation of our faith is simply a saviour who came, who died in our place, who was buried and who rose again. It's a simple truth. It's a truth that as we come with our doubts, our fears, our uncertainties, we can leave in faith. A faith not found in the absence of those uncertainty and fears, but in the midst of. Acts 17, verse 30 and 31, it says this, The times of ignorance God has now overlooked, for he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is our assurance of who he is. He is who he said he is. He's done what he said he would do. Because Christ has risen, we know that he will return. That at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. Before him, every man and every woman will stand and give an account of their lives. The resurrection is our assurance. It's the truth that turns fear into faith. Reality number two. See, there's no doubt that as these ladies and even as the other disciples came to gaze upon the empty tomb, they came with grief, great grief, with sorrows. And the grief was real. They lost someone they loved. They were uncertain of the future. There was genuine tears. There was great weeping. There was great mourning. And yet, although they came with tears, they left in triumph. They left with great joy. And it's no different for us today, 2,000 years later. See, there's two realities that we can ponder upon, we can reflect upon when it comes to this tomb. Number one is he is not removed from our grief and our sorrow and our struggles. Not just because he's God and he knows everything, but because he has walked in our shoes. He knows the struggles that we go through. He knows the pain. He knows what it is to be spat upon, to be scorned, to be abused, to be betrayed. He's not removed from our suffering because he's been there. And yet as we come to the tomb, we bring our sorrows, our fears, our failures, the questions, the sadness, and a miracle occurs. The same as on that very first Resurrection Sunday. As the darkness and despair of our life is brought into the glorious light of his presence. In the midst of our pain, there is a perspective. 
spat, sorry. The perspective of a resurrected saviour. Good thing no one's in the front row there. There is a glorious perspective that we find in the midst of our grief and struggles, tears that turns our tears to triumph. Reading a book at the moment by uh, a gentleman most of you would know. His name is Ravi Zacharias. He's now in his 70s. And he's been, probably most would say, one of, if not the greatest apologist of our generation. He's traveled extensively throughout the world in defense of the Christian faith. He's debated at all of the prestigious universities. He's written numerous books. He has no less than nine doctoral degrees, as you do. We won't ask for a show of hands. But he makes this statement in his recent book. It was published earlier this year. And... He wants to give insight into his heart, into his passion. So if you were to ask him, why is it that you've done this for 70 plus years of your life? Defense of the faith, come against intellectuals who constantly berate him and belittle him. And he comments a number of times just the level of animosity towards the gospel and anyone who stands for Christian values in today's world. But he says this, this is his statement. He says, to be truthful, I wouldn't waste a moment in this task if I didn't truly believe that as the world is skidding out of control, politically, socially, economically, and racially, Jesus' answers are unique. They're true, and they provide the only coherent worldview, combining truth with relevance to bring hope and meaning. What a statement. A man who has debated the intellectuals, he's studied and come across every worldview there possibly is says, this is what is my driving passion. There's nothing else out there. There is no other message that gives us meaning and perspective in the midst of a world that is not always rosy, where there are hardships and there's struggles and there is difficulties. As we come to the tomb, the darkness and despair of our life is brought into the glorious light, the reality of his presence, of a resurrected saviour. He rose again. You see, it only gets better because not only is there a perspective, but as we look upon this reality of who Christ is, we also find a power. There is resurrection power. I mentioned this before, Romans 8.11. Paul says this, says, The same spirit that raised Christ from the grave is in us is at work in us. The very same power, it's not tainted, it's not given to us in part, but the very same Spirit in full measure. In fact, Paul will go on in Romans 8 to talk about the fact that the very thing that marks us, that differentiates Christian believers from any other people on the earth is the power and presence of the living God at work in us to cleanse us from sin, to put to death the flesh, to live a victorious life. In his glorious grace, as we look at the empty tomb, we see a perspective, but we see a power that turns our tears to triumph. The tomb is empty, death is defeated, sin is conquered, grave, the grave is overcome, but that very same power that raised him is at work in your life and in my work, in my life. Amen. One amen. Good. Praise God. And you see, the problem so often is... 
Not that the empty tomb is lost any of its power, but tragically the cross, the resurrection, the work that was accomplished by Jesus is obscured in the midst of modern Christian talk in our services. We've removed crosses from being central often. There's all sorts of other things as you walk into modern church buildings, not the cross. It's a bit too offensive. It's a bit too in your face. It's there, but it's off to the side. And we need to come back to a place where this perspective and the power of the resurrected Savior is front and center. And I heard this Easter as you did. I haven't heard the the, um, Easter Sunday messages, but I heard a number of messages. And they were all fine. They were all good messages. I like to listen to what the, the head of this church and that church is saying. A lot of them had great messages about you know, hope and about being kind and and loving and all these nice things. And there's nothing wrong with them. But front and center should always be the cross and its power and its purpose. The resurrection. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the secret to the power of the Christian life. It's him. It's his resurrection power. And I just have this sense I shared in a little more detail at the earlier service, just about this prompting from the Lord as we've Gathered as a pastoral team, even this week we gathered the worship teams together just to worship and to seek him. And this picture of the the thing that the Lord keeps impressing upon my heart is that he wants to awaken the bride. He wants to return and come back from a glorious bride without spot and wrinkle, a victorious bride. I believe that we, we, we will see two things in coming years. I believe that there will be darker things all around us. I believe that the world is heading in a certain direction, but I pray and continue to pray and believe with all my heart that the Lord will restore his resurrection power to awaken his bride. And I don't want to say that just as a thing to say, but I genuinely believe that that's what the Lord is doing. He's stirring hearts to seek him, that we would become the bride that he desires. Let us never sell our birthright as Esau did for a bowl of porridge. Be content only with the things of this world, with wealth and prosperity. May we never stop seeking after the resurrection power that he offers, the power of the gospel that's at work in our hearts and our lives. Lord, come and awaken us. So as we gaze upon the tomb, we see this reality that turns fear to faith and it turns tears to triumph as we discover this perspective, as we encounter afresh the power. And number three, we see a tomb turned into a testimony. In fact, if you look through the accounts in the Gospels of every time that Jesus appeared post-resurrection, he's generally doing two things, not on every occasion, but generally... Number one, he's eating with his disciples. He's feeding him fish. Don't know what you do with that other than he's my sort of guy. <laughs> Number two, he is commissioning. He continues to commission disciples and followers. And as the angel proclaims he's not here, he's risen, just as he said. The angel says, come and see for yourself. Come and see, experience, encounter all that the empty tomb proclaims, the reality of the resurrected Savior, but then go. But then go, there is disciples and there's a world that desperately needs to hear this message of the salvation of our God. You see, there's a number of encouragements, but 
If you're camped at the shores of defeat, you look throughout Scripture. On so many occasions, the shores of defeat are only the doorway to his destiny and his victory. He's the God who turns our fears into faith, our tears into triumph, and then he'll turn the tomb into a testimony. And he'll say, go and proclaim. Go and proclaim. Let your life proclaim the glorious saving power of our Lord Jesus. See, this is the resurrection reality. And I, as I said earlier, believe this is just as relevant for us. 2,000 years later, that this morning, here as we gather, we can gaze into the empty tomb. And I want to encourage us, we're going to take communion in just a moment to do exactly this, to gaze in there and find that truth in the midst of your fears that will turn your fear into faith. I want you to gaze into that empty tomb and I want you to find that triumph, the perspective and power that turns our tears into triumph. And I want you to allow, as we encounter afresh the resurrected Lord Jesus, allow him to turn the tombs into a testimony that we would go forth with great joy, with great joy, with awesome wonder and reverence to proclaim to others, he's risen. He's risen just as he said he would. He who promised is faithful and continues to be faithful. But otherwise, I just bless you today. May you gaze yourself into the empty tomb and may there be a reality to the resurrection for each and every one of us here. That's my prayer. Re reality of the resurrection this day. Bless you, Lord Jesus. So just come forward now if you need prayer. I'll pray with you. Amen.